All right, well, if you have your Bibles, we're in Psalm 6 tonight, uh, prayer in time of distress. And uh, as we uh, look at Psalm 6, uh, note it uh, has the superscription to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-string harp, a Psalm of David. So once again, we have a Psalm of David. And uh, it comes with a heading directed to the chief musician, as a number of his psalms do. Uh, evidently, this was the, uh, the leader of the choir or uh, uh, key leader among the musicians uh, leading worship in the time of David. Uh, not only was it written for stringed instruments, but specifically mentions it was intended to be accompanied by uh, the eight-stringed harp. So he's got something very specific in mind here he would like to have happen in, in relationship to this particular song or psalm. This is the first of what we call uh, penitential uh, psalms. Uh, there are seven of them. And in these psalms that we call penitential psalms, uh, the key idea is confession. And uh, in the confession, the writer is often experiencing uh, God's disciplinary hand and is suffering and is crying out concerning, uh, you know, getting right with the Lord. So these psalms really kind of show us uh, the biblical model of what confession is all about. Well, for believers in Christ, our position is forever secure. I mean, the blood of Jesus forever answers to our, our sin problem, and we have eternal security. You know, one of my favorite verses on this subject is Hebrews ten fourteen, And remember, we're talking about a penitential psalm, the issue of confession, and how it fits in here as far as application for us. Well, you know, when we sin, we don't say, well, I lost my salvation. I'm no longer saved. No, no, we don't, we don't do that. Not, not, not if we're uh, sound in our doctrine, right? And the reason for that is because of verses like Hebrews 10, 14, which says, by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You can't get any better than perfected forever. You can't get any longer than forever. So perfected forever. What a wonderful reality. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been perfected forever. You didn't do it, by the way, by one offering He. He has done it. Uh, all to Jesus we owe. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. We give Him all the glory. But I love that. That ought to settle it forever. Uh, you know, uh, you didn't pay for it. You, could, you, know, you can't keep your salvation. Uh, he keeps you. You know, it's like John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. <laughs> How true that is. Uh, the keeping power is his. Uh, so we won't lose our position before God as believers. As his children, if you're a child of God, you're forever a child of God. That, that will never change. Our position is perf perfect uh, forever because of the blood of Jesus. However, in our walk, we do get our feet dirty. And our relationship is forever established, but in our walk, uh, we need maintenance. And uh, in our walk, when we mess up, we need to get right in our walk, right? Our position doesn't change, but well, there's a little problem in our walk. It's kind of like Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Well, well Peter, you need your feet washed. And Peter says, wash my, and then my, my whole body, start with my head and just, you don't, you don't need the bath, you don't need the bath of regeneration. You just need your feet washed. That's the way it is with us as believers. Lots of times we need our feet washed. Now, 
our position is fine, but we need our feet washed. And, and what do we do with that? Well, you know, God's given us a verse here in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, to confess means to agree with. We acknowledge it. We agree with God. Uh, if we confess our sins, he is, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is maintenance. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this before. It's kind of graphic, but confession has been called the vomit of the soul. It's necessary to the spiritual healing process. Uh, you know, that junk that needs to be dealt with. <laughs> we bring it out. I confess. I agree with you concerning my sin. Well, in the Psalm, uh, Psalm 6 here, David is hurting physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Uh, and he sees himself as being under discipline. And the wicked enemies are part of his affliction. But as is often the case, we are not told what the specific occasion was. David, how did you fall? Why are you under discipline? Why is God angry with you? Why do you think he's angry with you? He's, we're not given those details. Uh, let's uh, look at the outline here at this point. Uh, note uh, Psalm 6, uh, theme prayer in time of distress. Uh, we have... David's agonizing plea in verse 1. David weak and troubled, verses 2 and 3. The urgency of David's plea in verses 4 and 5. A vivid description of David's agony, verses 6 and 7. And then David's confident declaration in verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> so let's get into the psalm itself. Uh, psalm 6 in verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. David at this point is really asking for mercy, uh, and he seems to acknowledge that he is under discipline. Do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me, discipline me uh, in your hot displeasure. So this would indicate that David does feel like he's under discipline, but he he doesn't tell us for what. He doesn't say, you know, because of what I've done. He doesn't name what it is. He just wants God to not deal with him in hot displeasure, which suggests maybe there's a reason he might be upset with him. Uh, but again, he, he doesn't name it. But he doesn't want to feel the, the brunt of God's hot anger. Uh, now, eight times in this short psalm, David addresses God as Lord. Uh, the name there is Yahweh. Uh, which is uh, the most sacred name for God, as the Jews considered it to be anyway, the most sacred name for God, uh, what we often call his covenant name, uh, Yahweh. And uh, this name is very precious to believers because it denotes God's unfailing loyal love, uh, his unchanging love, his steadfast love. I mean, God is very consistent here, uh, his, his loyal love. Uh, he'll never move off of that. And David is claiming that all the way through this psalm. But God in his faithfulness is also faithful to discipline. He's also faithful to discipline his children for their ultimate good and for his glory. Don't you love that about God? Softly, yes, we do. <laughs> Who likes discipline? I mean, nobody likes discipline, right? I'll bet when you were a kid you said, hey, I can't wait for my next spanking. <laughs> Nobody is in that category, not if they've got their right mind about them, right? I mean, but it is good for us. And uh, we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the chasing of the Lord. You know, don't despise it. Don't kick against it. Uh, 
nor detest his correction. And here's why. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Uh, You know, if you find yourself under discipline, rejoice that God loves you enough to discipline you, to bring you back in line, to, to deal with you. So you really properly understood discipline is an act of love. You know, we, need, we need a whole lot more love in our whole society. There's not enough love, <laughs> disciplinary love. Now, we need to have a great relationship too. But kids need discipline. And uh, we, as God's children, need discipline. And uh, frankly, all of us need discipline from time to time. There is no exception. You say, well, I'm a very good kid. I, I never need, uh, stop it, you're going to get disciplined for lying. Uh, The writer of Hebrews addresses uh, those who are going through some hard times. And here's what he says. Lots of things he says here. But notice, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Christ is our great example. And then he says, you have not resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. Hasn't, you know, this is how strong it was with Christ as he was battling, uh, you know, in the garden and so forth. But... He says here, verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, as to children of God. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. We read that, right? That comes out of Proverbs. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. He disciplines uh, every son. Uh, whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? I mean, it's expected in a Jewish home, if you're a responsible father, you would discipline your children. And uh, every, every son would need some discipline. And God puts his children through discipline for a purpose. Praise the Lord. He's a very responsible heavenly father, and he's always got a reason for what he does. Uh, here in Hebrews 12, 8, But if you are without chastening, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Uh, you know, sometimes I wonder how professing Christians uh, seemingly get away with living in flagrant sin, and this just goes on and on and on. It doesn't seem like there's any disciplinary consequences. That's a serious matter. Um, Now, I'm not the judge. God alone is the judge. But it seems to me like if you are a true child of God, uh, you don't get away with sin uh, indefinitely, just going on and on and on. If God doesn't intervene, maybe it's because you're illegitimate. You're not his his child. You know, I never spanked the neighbor's kids. I I never did. For one thing, I didn't want to go to jail. (laughs) But, you know, that's really not my place. It's not, not my kid's. Uh, we're God's kids. God disciplines his children. But the illegitimate, okay, they may say they're a Christian, but if there's no discipline, maybe it's because they're illegitimate. That's what he says, uh, of which all have become partakers. Uh, and if, if not, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Uh, you know, just to finish this thought out from Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 12, uh, 9 through 11. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, there's the, there's the issue. He for our profit, for our good, that we may be partakers of his holiness. God's building holiness into our lives. 
uh, when he spanks us, when he chastens us. And then he says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. It's, it's not, you know, a joyful experience, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it has a purpose to build holiness in, into our lives. As we often say, no pain, no gain. I think that's true when it comes uh, to this whole issue of discipline. Well, uh, David, again, does not mention any specific sin in Psalm 6, but he does indicate that God may be upset with him. And uh, he's asking that uh, God kind of go easy on him and not, not discipline him in his hot displeasure. Uh, certainly he saw God as sovereignly behind this. Well, as the psalm continues, it does seem that the affliction David was going through was severe. So severe that he thought it might kill him as we find in verse 5. So notice what he says in verse 2. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. Notice uh, David comes pretty humbly here. He doesn't come arrogantly or or with self-righteousness. He comes humbly asking for the Lord to have mercy on him. He doesn't say, I I deserve better treatment than this. (laughs) No, he doesn't. this, too, indicates he's kind of admitting he's been off track because he's coming and asking for mercy. And he cries out for mercy because he was weak, meaning he's languishing. Uh, he asked for healing because his bones, meaning his entire body, was racked with pain. Uh, David, frankly, was a mess, and he needed help. Verse 3, My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Body and soul was hurting. David was greatly troubled. And in this distress, he cried out, Oh, Lord, how long? This is kind of a common prayer in the Psalms. One commentator said, The question we should ask isn't, When will I get out of this? But what can I get out of this? You know, that's really easy to say when you're not going through it. (laughs) Uh, I really don't want to be too hard on David. I mean, being human, when you're in the midst of an agonizing experience, as David was going through, you're crying out, how long am I going to have to go through this? Uh, Human anguish uh, cries out for relief. And David did. Verse 4, return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. Now, notice how verse 4 starts out, return. That indicates it's almost like in David's mind, uh, the Lord had been away from him. Return. Uh, I want that sweet fellowship with you. Return, O Lord. So David at this point feels like God has been distant. As seen in him asking for the Lord to return. David Gazik says, David felt distant from God. This was part of the agony of the trial. When we sense that God is near, we feel that we can face anything. But when we sense that he is distant from us, we feel weak before the smallest trial. Boy, there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, when you feel like you're not close to God, you're just, you're just weak. You're not strong at all. And of course, we're not. Our strength is, is found in him. But this is a good reminder, I think, to us that uh, part of the battle, and sometimes a large part of the battle is feeling like God is distant in the trial that we are going through. And when you go through this, remember, you're not the first to have this experience. 
Uh, David felt this way. And again, remember, this is part of the spiritual battle. And in this state, David pled for God's intervening deliverance. I need your help, God. Intervene, return, uh, come to my rescue. And the basis of his plea was the mercies of God, as he, as he says there in verse 4. Save me for your mercy's sake. Now, this word mercies is that special Hebrew word hesed. Hesed refers to God's loyal, unfailing covenant love. David, in effect, is saying, I haven't always been faithful, but God, you are, and on that basis, I'm asking you to deliver me. In the Davidic covenant, God had expressed really what is a hesed commitment to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Again and again, God had proven himself faithful to his loyal love for David. And so on the basis of God's faithful character, David asked for help. Warren Wearsby says, Every Jew knew that the Lord was merciful and gracious, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. So David asked God to manifest that mercy to him and spare his life. David's ground of asking God for help was not because he deserved it, but rather it was the steadfast love and faithfulness of his God. God can always be counted on to be faithful to his covenant promises. You can drive a stake down there, and it's always appropriate to seek God through the lens of his faithful character. We often fail him, but he will never fail us. And even when you don't feel like God is close, even when you don't feel like it, realize that God is faithful and seek him on that basis. That's what David did. Verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave who will give you thanks? Oh, that's an interesting verse. I remember as a brand new Christian, you know, I had, I'm sure, I think they were an unbeliever, throwing this at me. You know, you're all excited about going to heaven, but you know, the Bible says when you die, you don't know anything. <laughs> okay, a brand new believer. Well, they had a verse, I think, too. Uh, maybe this one. It's an interesting appeal, isn't it? David makes the case that God keeping him alive would result in worship being attributed to him, to God, by David, if he's still alive, in contrast to dying, where he would no longer make mention of God or give thanks. Notice what he says, in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? If I die, Lord, I'm not going to be able to worship you anymore. Well, what should we do with this verse? Well, the word, uh, by the way, grave here, is the Hebrew word sheol. And it is a word that can mean the grave, or it can mean the realm of departed spirits. And, of course, it has its uh, counterpart, Hades, Hades, in the New Testament. Uh, and how do we determine what the sense is? Well, the context, sometimes we don't know, because is it clear from the context? But the context really is the determining factor. Well, this does seem strange to our ears as we think about death through the lens of New Testament revelation, which we are privileged to have. How can we explain David's response here in Psalm 6-5? Well, two ideas have been put forth. They're both possible. 
the first idea is that David is only thinking in terms of this earthly scene and not addressing the life hereafter, which in other places he acknowledges. For example, in Psalm 23, 6, you know it, right? Where he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, that seems to speak about, you know, and hereafter where I'm going to be with the Lord. Uh, This view argues that David is only speaking in reference to the affairs of this life and is not addressing anything beyond it. Uh, He's not thinking in those terms. Uh, And it is pointed out that other Old Testament passages use similar language uh, when kind of looking at life under the sun and just kind of looking at that in a narrow way like that, viewing death strictly from an earthly perspective. For example, uh, you know Ecclesiastes 9.5, right? For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Boy, that's a dismal view, isn't it? Uh, Another idea here, uh, the second view is that in the Old Testament, the afterlife was shadowy. It was shadowy in their understanding. Sometimes they seem to have great confidence, as seen, for example, in Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives. Uh, At other times, a sentiment of uncertainty prevailed, uh, seen, for example, here in Psalm 6-5. There certainly were glimpses into the eternal future, but clearly their understanding in the Old Testament was murky in comparison to what we now have in light of New Testament revelation. I'm really thankful to be living in the New Testament era. Uh, notice what uh, Paul writes in, for, in 2 Timothy 1.10. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. We see it through the gospel. Wow, we see relate, things related to life and immortality in a way that they, was never seen before. Jesus came from heaven, gave us more revelation about heaven and hell than had ever been known before. Jesus told us about Father's house, right? What do you have in Father's house? Well, we're all living in Father's house. In my Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. Well, I don't know what that's going to be like, but there's going to be a place and he'll come back. And he'll come back one day, and he'll take us to him. Take us to Father's house. I'm kind of interested in checking into my dwelling place, and I'm wondering if Janie's going to be right next door. <laughs> I have no idea how this is going to be. We know from New Testament revelation that now in Christ, uh, to be absent from the body is to be where present with the Lord. We know that. In the Old Testament, again. Uh, went to uh, the Sheol, the realm of departed spirits, but it was just kind of foggy. We know in the New Testament that for the believer to die is gain, right? It is far better, Paul says in Philippians. He doesn't say, "Eh, it's close, you know, but on further review, it's a little better. (laughs) No, it's far better. You know, Paul probably should know this. After all, he had a, had a trip to heaven, you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And so uh, far better, far better. Uh, the New Testament revelation is that one day we will receive a glorified body 
just like Jesus Christ has a glorified body. Uh, Our bodies, these weak bodies, will be transformed uh, to be like that of our risen Lord. It's our our hope, our glorious hope. David Gazik says, David's point wasn't to present a comprehensive theology at this point. Uh, His point was not to present a comprehensive theology of the world beyond. He was in agony, fearing for his life. And he knew he could remember God and give thanks now. He didn't have the same certainty about the world beyond. So he asked God to act according to his certainty. Uh, Perhaps perhaps that's true. Uh, Verse 6, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. Wow, this is a miserable experience that David is going through. Note the word weary here, by the way. Um, David was totally worn out and exhausted. Traumatic grief in combination with excessive weariness can take a tremendous toll on the mind and the body. David is spent with groaning all through the night, with crying all through the night. Uh, Notice the figurative language, the hyperbolic uh, terms he uses here as he speaks of the severity of, of his suffering and sorrow. Groaning. Make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. I mean, it is a pitiful uh, situation here. And it is truly amazing what sometimes people go through, what what God's people go through. Indescribable. He says, verse 7, My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. David's eyes were red and sore, as it were, because of overwhelming grief and lack of sleep. David's life at this point was characterized by absolute misery. Notice what he has said here. It's not a pretty picture, but David sensed God's anger. David felt far from God. David was overwhelmed with grief. David couldn't sleep. That's a a horrible combination. And uh, it's a pitiful condition in which one feels helpless and hopeless. How long, verse 3, David felt discouraged and depressed. He was both mentally and physically at the end of himself. But prayer changes things. And David is testimony to this. This psalm is testimony to this. Even this psalm at this very juncture, we see a, a, a change. As David has been pouring out his soul, you know, kind of the ugliness of what he's going through to God. Verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice, uh, the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Suddenly, David has a change of heart. Suddenly, he goes from a very bleak outlook to having great courage that he will yet triumph over his enemies. And in that newfound courage, he tells all the workers of iniquity to depart from him. David now ends the psalm with a a voice of confidence. And he makes it clear what has made the difference. Notice he says, For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Uh, God has answered prayer in the inner man. God has changed his whole perspective. God hears the voice of weeping. Isn't that interesting language? The voice of my weeping. It moves the heart of God. Uh, Again, David Gazik says, Weeping has a voice before God. It isn't that God is impressed by emotional displays, but a passionate heart impresses him. 
David wasn't afraid to cry before the Lord, and God honored the voice of his weeping. And uh, Spurgeon's got a great quote here at this point. Is it not sweet to believe that our tears are understood even when words fail? Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers. Isn't that interesting uh, language? Uh, Think of tears as liquid prayers. Well, that's what David was saying in effect here. Verse 9, the Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. He's now very confident. Three times in two verses, David now makes the emphasis that God has heard his prayer. I mean, he was down about as far as you can go. But now he says, the Lord has heard, verse 8. The Lord has heard, verse 9. The Lord will receive my prayer, verse 9. This is confidence through prayer. David has gone from weak, troubled, greatly troubled, weary, grief to overflowing with confidence. And it's simply because of prayer. Prayer has made all the difference. You know, his circumstances hadn't yet changed, but his perspective has changed. The act of burying your heart to God is like a balm for the soul and serves to soothe one in times of great distress. What a glorious reality is this thing called prayer that we so often take for granted. David, in the time of great distress, learned the secret of the Lord's comfort, of the Lord strengthening him and giving him confidence. You know, we have these wonderful verses in the New Testament where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Who comforts us? Where does he do this? In all our tribulation. Not some of it. In all our tribulation. To the end that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. A lot about comfort here. Uh, He is the God of all comfort. This is a very real experience for the children of God who pour out their hearts to God through liquid prayers. Verse 10. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So David is very confident, but he's got one more request here. He's asked God to turn the situation around where his enemies will be ashamed and greatly troubled. And he asked God to do it suddenly. The psalm ends with David confident that God will act. And yet asking... That God move quickly. Well, I love this psalm because it really emphasizes that God works through prayer. It's kind of a simple illustration here, but have you seen this? You know, uh, going into the prayer room, you know, pretty meek like these little kittens, uh, coming out of the prayer room. (laughs) Makes the point. Uh, I read of a man who was very troubled about something, and as he wrestled in the prayer closet over it, He suddenly came out of the prayer closet and cried, Victory! Victory! This is the story of Psalm 6. This is a testimony of David as God brought him through a time of incredible discouragement and distress. And God did it through prayer. God works through prayer. And lots of times the work that he does in that context is in us changing our whole perspective as we come back and focus on God as we should do. Well, are you weak, troubled, and weary? 
Take it to the Lord in prayer. Casting all your care upon him, for he does care for you. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.